well. Uh, we're uh, continuing our, our discussion of uh, assisted reproduction. I probably uh, confused you a little bit at the end, so I'm going to uh, just go over some things. We're basically looking right now, we looked last week at uh, the older technology, which was artificial insemination, and in particular, the very interesting machlokas between Rav Moshe Feinstein and the Satmar Rebbe regarding a woman, a married woman, that is impregnated with donor sperm. So again, just to remind you of, of, of the machlokas there, according to the Satmar Rebbe, if a Jewish married woman is impregnated with donor sperm, she, is committed, she has committed adultery, even though there was no intercourse. She is not allowed to remain married to her husband. And the child that is born from donor sperm is mamzer because she committed adultery. That's a very extreme position. So there are three consequences. She cannot stay married to her husband. She is guilty of the sin of adultery. And the child is a mamzer. This is the Satmar Rebbe's position. What Jewish Jewish sperm? We'll talk about Jewish sperm. We'll talk about for a moment. Now that's the Satmar Rebbe. Rav Moshe Feinstein wrote four responsa on this issue, and he concluded he disagreed with the Satmar Rebbe on all three of these problems. Number one, he said she is not guilty of the sin of adultery because insemination with even donor sperm is not the same as a sexual act. Yeah. Yes. Yes, okay, maybe I should make that clear. In other words, the halacha is very, very clear that if a woman, at least with a Jewish man, we'll talk about non-Jews in a moment, if a woman commits sexual intercourse, voluntary sexual intercourse, with a Jewish man that she's not married to, she's unfaithful to her husband, she's not allowed to stay married to her husband. So again, this is gonna be a hard question. Uh, there is a double standard here. Uh, a man that is unfaithful to his wife, uh, she has the right to demand to get, etc. but if, if they wanna stay married and work it out, they are permitted to stay married and work it out. Now, there is a logic to this double standard, even though you may question the underlying logic, and that is, under Torah law, a man is allowed to have more than one wife, under Torah law. So if a man is allowed to have more than one wife, the woman cannot complain, so to speak, that he was with another woman because he would have had the right to marry that other woman. Right, so in a sense, the double standard is a consequence of maybe another double standard. That is, if you recognize that the Torah permits a man to have more than one female relationship, then even if it's adulterous, so to speak, uh, it, it would not be grounds to say that uh, they cannot stay married. On the other hand, if a woman commits adultery, a married woman, a Jewish woman commits adultery, she cannot stay married to her husband. However, it's very tricky. Let me explain why it's a little tricky. It's a little tricky because the laws of evidence are tricky. Meaning to say, let's say Let's say uh, a woman goes to a rabbi. This happens. A woman goes to a rabbi and says, I have been unfaithful to my husband. Now, what is the rabbi supposed to do? Is the rabbi supposed to tell the husband, you know, can't, you can't? So according to the halacha, interestingly enough, 
a party to adultery is not a kosher witness on that particular event. So as a practical matter, uh, we would tell the woman, uh, you know, have a nice day, meaning if you want to stay married to your husband, just forget about it, meaning to say, go on and, and, and work it out. Which means there's a difference between the law and the books, so to speak, and the law that we'll actually practice. There is indeed a halachic principle that if a woman committed adultery through sexual intercourse, she cannot stay married to the husband. Even if he wants to work things out. However, however, this would require a type of evidence that you would almost never have. This would require two witnesses. Who's going to witness? Uh, because if the woman herself just says she did it, the husband does not have to believe it, and therefore they could work it out. Now, uh, by, so, so in effect, therefore, it would be rare that we would halakhically compel dissolution of a marriage based on adultery. But in either case, if a man commits adultery, she could ask for a get, and a basin would grant it to her, but if they want to work it out, uh, they can do so. In fact, there are therapists. I, I, I'm familiar with a very good Orthodox therapist in Baltimore, uh, and his whole specialty, his whole, I mean, he must do other things too, but I'm aware of this. Uh, he has a primary specialty in helping couples rebuild uh, loyalty to each other after adultery, kind of helping them recover from an affair. Yeah? Um, does the Satmo Debbie say anything about a woman receiving uh, IVF with like husband sperm while she's in uh, no, he does not. He does not. But, uh, but I'll tell you this much. Uh, even accepting the Satmar Rebbe's equation of insemination equals intercourse. Even if a man has intercourse with his wife when she's a nida, although that's forbidden, that's absolutely forbidden, the child is not a mamza, which is very fortunate for us because most people who come from non-religious homes uh, were conceived from women who were technically nidots, but Baruch Hashem, uh, no one is a mamza. So as strict as the Satmar Rebbe would be, uh, insemination is not going to be worse than actual intercourse, and actual intercourse would not be mamza. Okay, so that's important to know as well. Yeah. When you say witness, what does that mean? Does that mean like, like <laughs> wife and man were... Yeah, it, mean, it means, it means very, very... It means, yeah, it means very, very specific. So they're not included in the witnesses. That's correct. So if the woman goes and says like, Yes, I cheated on you with him, and he is sorry. Is this me? And he yeah. <laughs> and he is like, I we cheated. Those aren't witnesses. They don't or? count because so they have to be. Seen they have to be people besides the parties themselves. And what what do they have to have seen? Like have to see them <laughs> touching or holding hands or? Well, they may have to, they may have to see more than that. They have, which is very very rare. It's very very unusual. Yeah. They have to literally be in the bedroom. Uh, and then also so you know, so so you know, you know, it's a practical matter. Unless you have like really crazy degenerate people, uh, you're not going to have you're not going to have that normal. Uh, and then yeah. also uh, talking yeah. about how it's like adultery, adulterous, whatever it is. Yeah. The sperm isn't of her husband. This is something ready. Yeah. yeah. Would he also think that if the doctor who what's the word inseminated was not Jewish? Well, again, we're, we're, we're not. Folk, I mean, the Satmar Rebbe is not saying that 
the, the doctor uh, is creating the mamzer. Yeah. It's the sperm that's creating the mamzer. So we don't care if the doctor, I mean, some people do mention that possibility, but, but I, think, I think we dismiss it. We're not looking at the doctor as the rapist, so to speak, or the doctor as the adulterer. Yeah. We're looking at the source of the sperm as, as okay. an adultery. Yeah, so, so again, again, uh, so Sabna Rebbe again says, woman is guilty of adultery, uh, insemination is equal to intercourse, therefore woman cannot stay married to husband, and uh, therefore child is unfortunately a mamzer, very, very severe. Now that's Sabna Rebbe. Rav Moshe Feinstein, again, let's go the other side of it, says no, adultery requires a sexual act, insemination is not a sexual act, Therefore, the woman can stay married to her husband. Therefore, the child is not mamzer. But let me point out the obvious point. Even according to Rev Feinstein, the child's father is not the woman's husband. I mean, that, that, that much you have to understand. Uh, if the woman got impregnated from donor sperm, that does not confer halachic paternity on her husband, even if he legally adopts, which is usually the case. In most cases of artificial insemination, there'll be a legal adoption so that the woman's husband becomes the legal father. But legal father is not the same as halachic father, and uh, therefore it's, 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 it seems very obvious that there's no way on earth that the woman's husband has fulfilled his duty of procreation through AID. Now, yeah? But in this case, wouldn't So, so, okay, because otherwise we would assume it's from the, uh, from the husband. Like, you know, yeah, I mean, but we, it's we, like if the doctors if they weren't Jewish, then they couldn't. That, that, that's a possibility. That, that's not so <laughs> clear. That, in other words, the reason why it's not so clear is that unlike adultery that just tends to happen, uh, this was a coordinated program. They registered in a hospital, you know, so, so it, it becomes like a matter of almost public record that the woman is undergoing an insemination procedure. So that may have the status of witnesses, even if you don't have two Jews that were standing there, uh, because this was a official public type of proceeding. You see, that's why it's a little different than the surreptitious affair that needs like some, some witnesses. By the way, there used to be, you know, I'll tell you an interesting legal thing. In the state of New York for many years, this is now secular, totally not, not Jewish, the only grounds for divorce in New York State was adultery. Now it's, they changed a lot. Now, let's assume two couples, you know, a couple didn't want to stay married, mutual consent, but they couldn't get a divorce by mutual consent. There had to be adultery. So they would actually have fake, there was a little cottage industry of fake adulteries, meaning to say uh, they would arrange for the wife or the husband to meet somebody else in a hotel room, and they would have a photographer there and as they would walk into the room, walk out of the room, they would take a picture, and they didn't do anything. They actually didn't do anything. It was just a question of, you know, they wanted to get a divorce, so uh, they had to stage adultery. So, uh, I mean, the law changed, well, I don't know, it's I mean, now, New York, like every other state, you get, you get a divorce based on irreconcilable differences or mutual consent or whatever, whatever it is. But New York was very, very strict, and therefore there was a whole cottage industry of photographers who would stage fake photos and uh, they would use it in, in court. This was until the 60s. In other words, in the 50s, 40s, all those years, you had these fake adulteries 
that uh, were staged in order to get divorces in New York State. You couldn't, you couldn't do it. Now, I'll tell you another interesting legal trivia. This is a legal trivia. This is not a Jewish thing, but you know, it's an interesting little trivia. You know, uh, no-fault divorce, meaning getting a divorce just because irreconcilable differences, is really from the 70s onwards. And now it's the law everywhere in the United States. You don't need any grounds for divorce at all. Uh, but Louisiana wanted to make it harder to get a divorce. So they, want, they were experimenting with two types of marriage licenses. In other words, when you and your uh, spouse, or you and your uh, future spouse applied for a marriage license, you could choose between what was called a covenantal marriage license and a regular marriage license. The covenantal marriage license said, our marriage is so serious, we can only get a divorce if, upon adultery, like New York. But you could also opt for a regular marriage license that would allow you to get a divorce for any reason. So the couple had to make a decision if they wanted like super duper marriage license or regular marriage license. Mm -hmm. But they abandoned it because it created a lot of uh, animosity between, between the husband and wife. Because imagine, uh, you know, uh, not husband and wife, but fiance, they're, they're applying for a marriage license. So wife says, we're gonna be married forever. Of course we'll go with the covenantal. So husband says, well, you know, let, let's go with the regular marriage license, you know, you, you know so. Uh, because of that lack of shalom bias, they, they, they decided not to go with the idea of the double level marriage license. So they, there are no faults like everyone else. Yeah? When you say when a woman cheats on her husband and they get the divorce, like, do they have to? Yes, yes, they have to. They have to, they have to but again, as I say, only if the adultery is proven. Happen? And then vice versa, do they not have to if, um, like, if she... Um, if she cheats on her husband, and let's say there aren't two witnesses, but they still want to get a divorce because of it, would they not politically be considered divorced? Well, 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 like anything else, I mean, if, if, if two people want to get divorced for any reason, even if it's not adultery, we might discourage it, but they could still get halakhically divorced. So, so we wouldn't force it, we wouldn't say you have to. If they both want to, they could do that anyway. I mean, even if there wasn't adultery, they can do it. I mean, unfortunately, uh, divorce is rising in the even in the religious community, and it's usually not for adultery. It's because of whatever people are fighting or, or, or the like. So they wouldn't lose that right, even though it's sad, and we, we would discourage it. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, so let's say a woman cheats and they get divorced because they have to. Can they get remarried? No, then, then for sure they cannot. That's very, very interesting. In fact, yeah. in fact, let me point out that you wouldn't even need witnesses for this, meaning the rule that the woman's own word cannot establish adultery is only when she's already married, so her statement is not accepted unless you have witnesses. But if he then divorces her and he wants to remarry her, at that point her statement will, will be sufficient to, to prohibit a remarriage. And if you are an adulterer, Say again? If you are an adulterer. Yeah, the adulterer cannot marry the woman that he committed adultery with. That, that's correct. In other words, there are two people in the world. She can marry, well, she can't marry a Kohen, but she can marry anybody she wants, but the two people she cannot stay married to is she cannot stay married to her husband, nor can she marry the man with whom she committed adultery, which is, you know, that's the common scenario that she'd want to do that, and halacha does not permit her to marry the adulterer. She ever marry anyone in general? She can, yeah, she can, well, uh, she can marry anybody else if, if they would have her. 
you know, but only those, there's only two, only two people that she cannot uh, marry. At a Kohen, she cannot marry a Kohen either. Uh, so she can't marry Kohanim, she cannot marry, uh, stay married to her husband if there are witnesses, and she cannot marry the adulterer. So, so this is an important question. In other words, so here, here is what, what, what comes out. Since, even if she would be honest, the husband halachically does not have to believe the account, so most of the time we would advise the woman not to be honest. Uh, so, in tr- if you're, so if you're asking me a question, is she halachically obligated to confess? The short answer is absolutely not. And in fact, a rabbi would advise her not to confess. Now, if it's necessary for therapy or whatever it is, that's another issue, but if it's, it, there's no need to confess, and she would be well advised uh, not to. Um, uh, but again, as I say, if, if God forbid a woman finds herself in that quandary, she very definitely should talk to the rabbi, and the rabbi will, will, you know, will respect her confidentiality and will probably advise her in the way that um, I've, uh, I've described. Yeah. This is slightly unrelated, but do rabbis all, always have to respect confidentiality? Unless you're going to say, like, you're going to like, create something bad. So this was a fascinating question. This is a very, very fascinating question. I'll give you a case in New York, an actual case in New York involving a very, very prominent rabbi, a very well-known rabbi. There's, I don't know if any of you would, would know him. Uh, rabbi Tzvi Flam was really one of a very, uh, very prominent rabbi in New York. And he was sued by a woman, and this actually went all the way to the New York, the highest court in New York, which by the way, for those of you who are potential law students, uh, the Supreme Court of New York is the lowest court in New York. Uh, so the highest court in New York is called the New York Court of Appeals, so they, they reverse their, their title. But uh, this involved the following case. A woman came to him, a woman came to him and said, she doesn't want to stay married to her husband, and even though they're orthodox, she stopped going to the mikveh and uh, is not even telling the husband. In other words, the husband thinks she's going to the mikveh, and she says, you know, and she says she's going, and she's not going, etc. So he he told he felt he had an obligation to tell the husband because uh, the husband would be doing a sin. So he tells the husband, they get divorced, and then they're arguing over child custody. Listen to this. And the husband's argument is to the judge that he should get primary custody because she's not going to raise the children orthodox because she doesn't keep halacha because the rabbi told her that she doesn't go to the mikveh anymore. Now you may ask, why would a secular judge care about whether she's from or not from? Like, you know, is that a secular matter? Well, in New York it is, not because the judge cares if you're religious or not religious, but because there is a concept of continuity, meaning if a child was raised a certain way and the other parent is not going to raise him that way, so that is relevant in a, even on a secular level in the best interest of the child, meaning the child was already... See, if the child would have been six months old, it makes no difference if the mother is Jewish or Christian or Muslim or anything else, you know, that's not relevant. But when the child has already been raised five or six years in a religious environment, or a Jewish religious environment, so it is a relevant factor that the other parent is not going to keep the familiar thing. So she lost custody based on the fact that she was not going to raise the children in accordance with the religious traditions. So what she did is this, listen to this. 
she then brought a lawsuit. She sued the rabbi for violating confidentiality, which worked to her disadvantage because it resulted in her losing custody and he should not have told the husband. Now, you should know, this was a big, big lawsuit, and rabbis all over the United States were very, very frightened because this lawsuit could actually mean that halacha requires me. In other words, if, you, if a woman tells me something, or a man tells me something, that, that, that may cause the other person to do a very serious sin, I have a halachic obligation to tell that person. But now you're telling me if I keep my halachic obligation, I could be guilty of violating confidentiality. That puts the rabbi in a double bind. So the New York court's rules didn't really help. I mean, the rabbi won the case, but the reason that it gave was not a great reason. It basically said that even if the rabbi violated confidentiality, she could not sue him for money. Okay, but the, the court did not address whether he did violate confidentiality. So theoretically, it might be uh, that he did. So it is, it is going to be an issue. Well, like, all I can tell you is this. As a general rule, a rabbi is even halakhically, halakhically, legally, is supposed to respect confidentiality. Uh, things that a husband tells him, he does not have to, and he should not tell the wife, and things that the wife tells him, he should not tell the husband. But if it involves behavior that will cause the other person to do a sin, then he may have an obligation. And so that's going to be the basic that's going to be the basic standard. So if the wife says that she buys, uh, you know, she puts pork in the cholent uh, because it gives it a good taste, uh, you know, uh, he should tell, he needs to tell the husband. Well, if it, and it's like life-threatening, you tell, like you tell Well, of course, of course, of course. I mean, I mean, if a, if a guy says, uh, I have AIDS, I don't want my wife to know. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's the type of thing that even a doctor, even a doctor uh, it does not keep that information confidential. Right, so a rabbi, basically rabbis, a rabbi is like any other professional. I mean, lawyers, doctors, accountants, social workers, all have duties of confidentiality. Uh, those are secular duties, but halacha recognizes them as well. You know, you don't sim you don't simply reveal private information that people tell you. That's called lashon hara. That's part of lashon hara. It's an aspect of lashon hara. But in order to protect people from harm, you do you do reveal that. Information. You have to find them to be honest first. Yes, 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 yes. You should basically tell them that you know you need to be upfront. I want you to have the first opportunity to reveal this information, but you then give a date. But if you don't reveal it, if I don't hear from the husband that you talked to him about it, or can you give me confirmation, I will have to step forward and tell him. So you do tell you do tell the per either husband or the wife, whichever one is talking to you. Give them a chance to rectify, but on the, on the other hand, you can't like give them a year. I mean, because if it's an ongoing behavior, it needs to be corrected very, very quickly. And you tell them that uh, if you don't, if I don't get confirmation that you have been uh, forward with this information, I will have to take a step forward. Yeah. So it, it's a very, it's a tough situation, but it, but it sometimes happens that uh, you need to violate uh, confidentiality. In fact, I'll give you, a, again, a secular case where, you know, uh, for a lawyer, even if a client comes in and tells you, let's say, let's say you're a lawyer, and I literally tell you that I murdered, I murdered somebody, but you can't tell. You have to respect the confidence. You cannot reveal the confidence. 
Now, if, I'm, if I tell you I'm going to murder somebody, that's very different. You can turn me in because that's a danger that will happen. But if what I said was I murdered somebody, then that's confidential. The lawyer cannot lie, but the lawyer does not have to reveal it. So there actually was a case, I remember when I was in law school, this was a case going back uh, you know, many years, uh, 30, 40 years ago, where uh, two teenagers were missing and the parents didn't know if they were dead or alive. And the parents were going crazy. They were going on TV, you know, please just tell us they were appealing to the murderers. Just somehow communicate, are our children dead or alive? We just want to know. So a guy walks into a lawyer and says, I did it, and he took the lawyer to the graves. He had dug shallow graves, and these two bodies were there. So the lawyer didn't know what to do. So the lawyer could not identify himself as the lawyer, because then they would know who his client was. So he made an anonymous call just to tell the police where the, where the bodies were buried, just for the purpose of the parents getting closure. Somehow, the anonymous call was traced to the attorney, and the attorney was disbarred. He lost his law license for violating a confidence of a client. In fact, even if they arrest the wrong guy, now Halacha would absolutely disagree with this. Let's say some guy is sitting in jail because he was convicted for murder, and your client tells you he did it you are not allowed, legally, you are not allowed to reveal the ident your client's identity as the murderer, even if there's an innocent man sitting in jail, and even if the innocent man is gonna get the electric chair because of capital punishment, you cannot. The only thing you can do is once your client dies, you're allowed to reveal it to get the guy out of jail. Now, I wanna point out right off the bat Halacha absolutely rejects such a strong idea of confidentiality. Yes, uh, you respect confidentiality, but if you have to reveal a confidence to get an innocent man out of jail, and Kalbachomer to prevent an innocent man from dying, Halacha says 1,000% you violate confidentiality to save somebody else's life or to give somebody's freedom. So this is a very interesting question where the legal obligations of confidentiality are, might be much stronger than the halachic obligations. And then a religious lawyer has a real conflict of conscience uh, because if I obey the halacha, which I must obey, I could lose my law license, theoretically. I could, I could literally be disbarred for obeying halacha. So, Halachically, it's not a hard question. I mean, obviously, halacha versus secular law, you keep halacha. So it's not a hard question, but it's a difficult question because the person who wants to keep his religion may have to bear a very a big sacrifice. So be aware of that, that uh, confidentiality sometimes in the secular world is, goes overboard. It becomes like such a big, important thing that it overrides like everything else, when under Jewish law, that's not the case. Yeah? So I'm going to go into something like social worker therapy, and I know that those fields very much have similar confidentiality laws yeah. that you're describing. Yeah. Would that suggest that I should also be speaking to a rabbi when I have confidentiality issues? You absolutely should. It's very, very important. Because, as I say, in Kohelis, there's a pasuk that says, 
there is a time to talk and a time to be silent. And one has to know that sometimes the halacha requires you to violate confidentiality. It's not just a question of, you know, if halacha says, you, you know, you're not obligated one way or the other, so then you follow the secular rule. But very, very often halacha says you must reveal. And secular law may say you can't reveal. So then you have to know. Uh, you know your primary duty is, of course, to follow Hashem's law. But that can sometimes put you in very, very deep uh, trouble professionally. So there are some professional issues that uh, anyone with a confidentiality duty must, uh, must keep, in, keep into account. However, when you don't get into that contradiction, halacha does recognize a concept of confidentiality as well. Okay. So that goes back to, how did I get onto this? Just adultery, we were just talking about the yeah, adultery. Okay, so uh, that was the uh, famous case against uh, Rabbi Flom, which uh, was never really definitively uh, resolved. Okay, alrighty. Um, so let's go back to the artificial insemination. Again, I know I'm reviewing a little bit. So we have this great machlokas, Satmar Rebbe and Rav Moshe Feinstein, regarding the status of a woman and a child that is generated from artificial insemination by donor sperm. Okay, now the halacha, the basic halacha that most rabbis follow is they do follow the view of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. So, Baruch Hashem, the child is not a mamzer, the woman is not guilty of adultery. But I do want to point out that Rabbi Feinstein does discourage donor sperm, <coughs> even though it doesn't have the drastic consequences of the Satna Rebbe. And the reason Rabbi Feinstein discourages it is because he is concerned with secret incest in the future. Okay, do you remember this problem? The problem here is that sperm donors tend to be repeat people, and as a result, therefore, sperm donor to one woman, woman gives birth to daughter, sperm donor to other woman, woman gives birth to son, they could be a, a thousand miles apart, whatever it is, and 25 years later, uh, son of sperm donor marries daughter of sperm donor, and these are half-siblings who share a common father, although different mothers, and uh, that is incest, that is halachic incest, because even a half-sibling, not a step-sibling, step-step-not, but half-sibling, is incest. Therefore, Rabbi Feinstein discourages, but Rabbi Feinstein has a twist, and he says, this is only a problem if the sperm donor is Jewish. If the sperm donor is not Jewish, there is no halachic problem. Now, there may be a biological problem, but there's no halachic problem of incest simply because any non-Jew that impregnates a Jewish woman because of the rule of matrilineal descent has no paternal relationship to the offspring, and therefore, if sperm donor impregnates Jewish woman one and has a daughter, and sperm donor impregnates Jewish woman two and has a son, the son and the daughter are fatherless, halakhically, and if, if the sperm donor is not Jewish, and therefore they are in fact permitted to marry, although genetically it would not be advised. And therefore, by Feinstein said, if a woman is going to have AID, 
in insemination with sperm donor, she has to be sure that it's from a non-Jewish, this is kind of crazy, non-Jewish source. And in the United States, Rav Moshe said, we assume, without, uh, if we don't know to the contrary, because the, the population is overwhelmingly non-Jewish, we assume that the sperm comes from a non-Jewish donor. So at the very end of the day, therefore, Rabbi Feinstein grudgingly allows insemination with donor sperm on the assumption that it's from a non-Jewish source. Now he says the father, the husband is not mekayem any mitzvah with this. So there's no real reason, but if the woman really desperately wants to have a birth child, uh, they, can, they can do it that, that way. Uh, in Israel, that would be very different. In Israel, it's a much smaller country, obviously, but in Israel, a majority of the sperm donors are Jewish, so Rabbi Feinstein would be concerned with the secret potential of, of incest that comes, that comes later. Now again, let me point out that even the Satmar Rebbe, I think, would concede, has to concede, that if the sperm donor is not Jewish, you don't have a mamzer problem, because that's basic. E even intercourse with a non-Jew doesn't produce mamzer. But I think the Satmar Rebbe would, would be horrified because, he would tr because if he equates insemination with intercourse, then insemination of non-Jewish sperm is equivalent to a woman having relations with a guy. So that would certainly be horrendous, even though it would not have the mamzer consequence. Uh, yeah? Yeah, uh, it, 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 it's, it's true, it, 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 you know, it, it is true. Of course, again, uh, at the time that some of these halakhas were made, the, all of these testings were not, were not available. Today it is available, and again, uh, more than once, you know, you know, you may say this would never happen, but more than once uh, these things have been nipped in the bud, meaning to say half-siblings were actually going to get married and they were stopped at the last minute, and sometimes, sometimes, they were not stopped. Sometimes it was discovered after they were married. You know, you've got to be a little uh, worried sometimes. People say, <laughs> you know, make a bad joke now, but, you know, that uh, says, wow, you look just like your husband, right? Mm -hmm, okay, you know, maybe there's a reason for that. So you've got to be, you got to be, uh, you got to be careful. Uh, yeah? Also, if you're going to take the whole excuse of there not being those tests, couldn't you just make sure that you've got Yes, so so you're correct. You could have, for example, I think uh, someone raised it last week. You can have a a friend, uh, you know. In other words, that would that, that means not a, not an anonymous donor, but a, a, a specific person who's only going to do it once, maybe a gay friend. But there, I uh, and you're right. That that would obviate. That would eliminate the problem of the secret incest. But I think there's another problem of sneus, and that is when you have an identified guy who is the father of a married woman's child, that's kind of, uh, that brings another person into the marriage in a much more identified way. No, but you don't have to know really. You just say, I want from a donor who's only doing once in their life. Well, well how, how, how are you, you going to verify that? It's one thing if it's your you know, friend or whatever it would be, but to have an anonymous guy who says he's only going to do it once, I, you know, how, how do you know? He may change his mind the next, the next day. Yeah. What if you used your rabbi as like an intermediary where you're like, hey, I'm looking for a sperm donor. Yeah. I want to 
And the rabbi would keep would keep the record, so to speak. Yeah. yeah, like they could find somebody who like would kind of be like a friend to you in terms of like, okay, no, yeah. I'm gonna do this once, but you don't necessarily yeah. actually know who it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that may I mean again, I mean technically that may work. I think there's something uh, uneasy in putting the rabbi in the role of uh, that type of facilitator, huh? Even if it's someone that is only Yes, well, 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 I think the suggestion would be that the rabbi would, since the rabbi is aware of it, the rabbi would prevent that from happening. Well, like, but, you know, the rabbi might die, you know, I, I mean, uh, <laughs> he's not going to be around forever either. So, uh, what's going to happen? Yeah, okay. So now, uh, let me turn it around. So let, 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 me turn, let me turn these questions around, because we've been talking about sperm donors, sperm donors. Now let's talk about egg donors, egg donors, or or surrogates. Either way, in other words, uh, an egg donor would be uh, a woman who let, let's say let's say you have a husband and a wife, right? And the uh, wife can carry a baby. The wife is able to carry a child, but the wife e either is not ovulating properly or whatever. So we have a technology of egg donors, right? That, that the woman, single or married, can donate eggs, uh, and the eggs are fertilized in an in vitro fertilization procedure, and then the embryo is transferred into the wife's womb. Okay, that's called egg. That's something called egg donation, and it's been around for a while now. Egg donation from the perspective of the donor is a much harder procedure than sperm donation. Sperm donation uh, isn't very difficult and you know it has its own whatever, its own pleasure so to speak, even though halakhically it's very problematic. Halakhically one, sh one should not be a sperm donor precisely because of the masturbation uh, aspect. Uh, to be an egg donor, right, the life of a woman is hard. To be an egg donor is a surgical procedure. Now, yes, there's laparoscopy. There, there are surgery, surgeries that don't involve major cuts, but you know it is done under anesthesia. Uh, in order to maximize ovulation, that there'll be hormonal drugs that are administered because we don't just want one egg; we want to harvest a lot of eggs, and that is why uh, egg donors can get a lot of money. Uh, you can get, uh, I think, sometimes up to ten thousand dollars. Okay. Okay. So eggs, but but uh, okay. So so <laughs> so we have uh, egg donors. So egg donors would be available when a woman, a mar say a married woman, is able to carry a baby, but she's not ovulating properly. So an egg donor. Uh, or the opposite would be a gestational surrogate. Now this is the opposite situation. This is where wife does ovulate. She does have eggs that can be fertilized, but either she has a hysterectomy that left her ovaries intact so she doesn't have a womb, or for whatever health reason, she's not able to sustain a pregnancy. So here, what you have is husband's sperm fertilizes wife's egg, and the, and the fertilized embryo is transplanted into another woman's womb for nine months with the understanding that after the nine months the baby will be delivered to the husband and the wife 
and there'll be an adoption proceeding and the like, right? So these are two different scenarios. Egg donation, number one. Gestational surrogacy, number two. And there is something called full surrogacy. Now full surrogacy is a combination of egg donation and gestational surrogacy. And that is where the surrogate is both the egg donor and the gestational mother, which would mean to say, uh, now usually it's not gonna be, I mean theoretically it could actually be husband's sperm impregnating uh, the donor, but usually that's not how it works, because that's kind of adulterous. Uh, but rather the way it works would be that the, just, the surrogate donates an egg, donates eggs, the eggs are fertilized in vitro, and then the embryo is transferred to that surrogate. That's called full surrogacy. Right? You understand the difference? In gestational surrogacy, it is husband's sperm fertilizes wife's egg in vitro, and the embryo goes to the surrogate. That's called gestational surrogacy. Full surrogacy is when the surrogate donates the egg, the uh, husband's sperm fertilizes in vitro, then it goes to the surrogate. And you can also have a composite where you have two donors. You have the egg donor and the surrogate, meaning to say uh, you can have one woman donating the egg fertilized by husband's sperm that goes to another woman who carries it. So when you're involving uh, women who are donating either their womb or their egg, there are three different combinations. There is egg donation, there is gestational, actually four combinations, there is egg donation, there is gestational surrogacy, there is full surrogacy, and then there is what you might call split donation, where wife is giving nothing in the process, I mean she'll raise the child, but uh, you have one woman donating egg, and one woman donating womb, with the understanding that the child will be delivered to the couple afterwards. By the way, I'm assuming just for purposes of simplicity that we're dealing with a married couple that wants to have a child. I mean, theoretically, all of this could also be with a single woman also, but we're talking about how logically a married couple wants to have a child so they can use, so that's what we're going to do. Egg donations, gestational surrogacy, full surrogacy, split donation, right? So if I'm an Orthodox man married to an Orthodox woman, uh, are we allowed to use any of these mechanisms and what will the halachic uh, ramifications be? So essentially, here's the problem. There is really one basic problem, and that is who is the mother? Now this is extraordinarily important because we know, well number one, it's important anyway who's the mother, even if everybody's Jewish. Who's the mother? That's an important issue. But when you're dealing with Jew, non-Jew, it's extremely important because whether you're a Jew is defined exclusively by your mother. This is called the rule of matrilineal descent, a fundamental rule in Jewish halacha that Judaism is passed through the mother. Again, I'll just state the obvious, you know all this already. Um, there is no such thing in Judaism as a half Jew. You are not half a Jew. In the eyes of Judaism, you are either a full Jew or you're a non-Jew. There is no half-Jew. If your mother is Jewish and your father is not Jewish, you are not a half-Jew. You are 100% Jewish. And the other way around, 
if your mother is not Jewish and your father is Jewish, you are not half a Jew, although under Hitler's Nuremberg laws you might be so, uh, but you are 100% Jewish. Uh, what case? If the, mother, if the mother is not Jewish, I'm sorry, if the mother is not Jewish and the father is Jewish, you are 100% non-Jewish. Okay, that's an important, it's an important point because very often people identify themselves, I'm, a ha I'm half Jew. In halach, now again, I mean sociologically, you could, you could say that. I'm not, you know, that may be an accurate sociological description of your family dynamic. But in terms of halacha, there is no such thing as a half Jew. You're either all in or you're all out, and then you can rejoin by conversion. But you're not a half status. Now, given that reality, the question becomes, okay, I understand Judaism depends on the mother, but how do you define motherhood when you split the genetic contributor from the gestation? Let's take each case separately. I mean, it's, it's kind of the same question, but it just plays out different ways. Let's take egg donation. So here you have a Jewish husband and a Jewish wife, but the mother, the, 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 the wife is not ovulating. So they want to use a donated egg. Now let's say the egg donor, the egg donor is a non-Jew, a non-Jewish single woman, a college kid, right? Non-Jewish college kid who wants to make a little money for their uh, European vacation or whatever it is and decides to donate eggs. The sperm of the husband fertilizes that non-Jewish egg in vitro and the non-Jewish egg is then transplanted to the womb of his own wife, who carries the baby for nine months. Right? Egg donation, this is a regular egg donation. Happens, happens quite a lot. Now, question becomes this. A child is Jewish if the mother is Jewish. Okay, 100% true, uncontroversial. Question is though, who is the halachic mother in this case? Because genetically, the genetic composition, 50% of the genetic material in this baby's genes come from a non-Jewish woman. So the egg donor is the genetic mother, but the uh, Jewish woman is the birth mother. Is motherhood defined by genetic contribution or is motherhood defined by gestation and birth, right? So the statement that you often hear, a child who is born from a Jewish mother is Jewish, may not necessarily be true, because it's, it may not be born from a Jewish mother. All we can say is, a child of a Jewish mother is Jewish, but that leaves open the question, who is the, who is the mother? Uh, because, now let's look at the consequences either way. If motherhood, if halachic maternity is defined by genetic contribution, that means the child is a non-Jew and would need a conversion, like any adopted child would have to be converted. If, on the other hand, the child is a Jew by birth, they would not need conversion. That's a very important thing. In other words, a very simple question. If Jewish women give birth by eggs donated from non-Jewish women, does the child need conversion? I think we discussed already at length, I don't want to repeat it, 
unless someone has a question, the, the halachic procedure for converting babies and the like, there is a halachic procedure that when you adopt a baby, you can convert the baby. And uh, when the baby becomes bar mitzvah, they have the right to renounce. So essentially, uh, if you look at maternity as defined by genetic contribution, this would be the same as adopting a baby. Even though the Jewish mother carried the baby for nine months, and you would need a halachic conversion. If, on the other hand, maternity is defined by birth, the child is a Jew. See? So that's the, that's the $64,000 question. Who is the halachic mother? As you can guess, the answer is machlokas. That's always there. In fact, I gotta tell you, that's the, you know, you don't, you almost don't have to take the course here. You know, you can just uh, you know, any question, machlokes, and uh, that is a big machlokes, and and that is, there are some poskim who take the position that the since the unique endowments of a child are from the DNA that the child gets, therefore it is logical that the egg donor would be the mother halakhically, because that determines the genetic makeup of the child. On the other hand, the counter-argument is that when it comes to spiritual essence, maybe the opposite should be the case. Because we are told before a child is born, while the child is in the mother's womb, there is an angel that is learning Torah with the child. You, you know, that's the that's, the, uh, that's part of the first Gemara that the, the Alter Rebbe brings in the beginning of Tanya, although he doesn't quote that particular line there, but that's the passage. That's when the, the, the unborn soul swears to be a tzaddik and not to be a Russian. That's part of the, the extended discussion that it's learning all of this Torah in the womb. And when the child is born, the mala hits it on the lip and it forgets everything. That seems to indicate of course, what's just as a little aside, what's the purpose, this is an important point, what's the purpose of learning Torah in the womb if the child forgets everything anyway? So what's the point? So, well, so why bother? Is it just to kill time? Like, you know, uh, it gets boring in there in a very small area. Uh, what's the point of you learn the whole Torah and then it's taken away from you? But the answer is this. The, it's a very important answer. The answer is that even though you forget all that information, the holiness of the Torah becomes part of your life essence. So even though you don't remember it, it becomes part of you. That, that's what connects you to Hashem. Because Hashem's Torah and Hashem's will are one and the same, and therefore this is what connects the godly soul to Hashem. So according to that argument, when does that happen? That happens during the nine months of gestation. So all I can tell you is it's a big machlokes haposkim. Some poskim say the donor mother or the donor is the halachic mother and some poskim say the gestational mother is the mother. Now, practical difference, does the child need conversion? Now I can tell you this, I can tell you, I know from first-hand knowledge, from people that you know, 
uh, I've talked to you about this, that it's very uncommon in egg donor cases that people do conversions because the mother figures, I was, I've been carrying this baby for nine months. I got to convert a baby I was carrying for nine months. But that's actually a mistake because halakhically, it may, very, it may very well be that even if you carry the baby for nine months, the child is a Gentile by virtue of the genetic origin. Now, let, let me point out in a moment, just so, just so you, you understand the opposite. In gestational surrogacy, it is the same question and it's just flipped over. Because in gestational surrogacy, because I want to take you through all the combinations, even though you could figure this out yourself, just so you'll see. Gestational surrogacy is, is the situation where the egg is taken from the wife, husband's sperm fertilizes the egg, and then it is carried by a surrogate for nine months. Now, let's say the surrogate is not Jewish. So all you have in that case is a reversal. Because if the genetic mother is the mother, the child is Jewish. If, on the other hand, the birth mother is the mother, the child is not Jewish. In other words, it's the identical gestational surrogacy raises the identical question of egg donation. It is the same question, except it's just a reverse scenario. In the case of egg donation, the egg donor was not Jewish and the birth mother was Jewish, namely the wife. In the case of gestational surrogacy, it's the opposite. The egg donor was the Jewish wife and the uh, one who carried the baby was non-Jewish. Same problem. There is no difference analytically between one and the other. Yeah. There was a story in the Bay Area that like, a big to-do was made about in not observant, not observant Jewish community, that there was a couple um, who wanted to have a child, and she was able to donate an egg, but she was not able to carry the child, and her sister offered to carry the child for her. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'll, 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 I will get to that. I will, I will, I will get okay. to that. That's very much. Right now, I'm just dealing with Jew versus non-Jew, but I will get to intra intra-family egg donations and services. Yeah. So normally, I've heard that when in doubt, go without. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We would actually go the opposite. When in doubt, do it. <laughs> in fact, that happens all the time. You know, a lot of people undergo a procedure called. Giyor misafek. Giyor misafek or giyor l'chumra means conversion to cover your bases out of doubt. I mean, I'll give you a, a common example of where this would be done. Let's say that uh, your uh, mother or your grandmother even converted to Judaism. So as a result, you consider yourself a born Jew. But some people sometimes look at these conversions and say, well, but your grandmother wasn't orthodox, so maybe the conversion wasn't totally kosher. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. It's hard to figure out the conversion that happened 50 years ago. So often, what a rabbi will tell you is, okay, listen, you're probably a Jew by birth because your grandmother's conversion was okay. But just in case it wasn't okay, why don't you reconvert so you'll be a Jew for sure. Now interesting, that can sometimes be psychologically very devastating because that can make a person feel, you mean I'm, I wasn't a Jew until now? It's interesting. You have to know how to navigate that and, and present it in a way that does not cause a mental breakdown. 
which it sometimes does. I, I can tell you my own experience uh, that way. But this is called Gior Lechumra. So in the case of egg donation or gestational surrogacy, we would, we would opt for a conversion in case of doubt because of this unresolved issue. Yeah? Um, and that would have consequences for Mary Yes, it would. That's the downside. That's the downside. Gior uh, Lechumra establishes your Judaism without, suffer, without doubt, but it does mean that because of the doubt, you may not be allowed to marry a coin. That, 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 that is correct. That's Does that also the, mean you would no longer have a tribe? Uh, yeah. Yeah, or at least out of doubt, you wouldn't have a tribe. That, that, that's correct. Yeah. Would that type of conversion look like similar to like just a normal conversion for somebody where you still have to do like years of studying? Or would the whole premise that you were already living yeah, uh, th these types of conversions can often be much, much quicker, uh, meaning uh, it's treated like a formality, and we just want to get it out of the way. We sometimes can do it immediately, almost immediately. Uh, and e indeed, even the certificate that you get, you know, a gear gets a certificate, uh, may indicate that really we think you're Jewish, but this is just to cover the, the doubts, so to speak. Uh, but as I say, a uh, rabbi has to be careful about this because it does affect a person's self-image. In other words, to tell a person uh, who may have been even an Orthodox Jew for many, many years that, listen, we want you to do a conversion again can actually, you know, can actually upset a person a lot because they may ask, does that mean all of the commandments I was doing like didn't count? Uh, it's, it's an issue. Um, well, you know, there's no obligation to have a bar mitzvah. You know, it's, it's a party. <laughs> so, you know, you don't have to have a bar mitzvah to begin with, so you don't have to redo it. Uh, there's you no know, bar mitzvah, bas mitzvah, what do they say? Uh, in America, they care more about the bar than the mitzvah, but okay. As they say. All right. All right. Um, okay. Uh, so you, everyone understands this, uh, this obvious point. Uh, everyone understands this point that egg donation and gestational surrogacy are the identical, I can understand that, it's the identical problem. Who is the mother if one is a Jew and one is a non-Jew? I will get to the intra-family in a moment. That's very important. Now, if we go to the third variation of full surrogacy, now full surrogacy is very different. Full surrogacy is both the egg and the gestation are done by the surrogate. So here, there is no halachic question. If it's all coming from one woman, then the only question is, is she Jewish? It makes no difference who the wife is, because the wife is not doing anything here. So in the case of full surrogacy, there is no halachic shayla. If the full surrogate is a Jew, the kid is Jewish. If the full surrogate is not a Jew, the kid is not Jewish and needs a conversion. So when, when you hear people say, oh, in surrogacy we have uncertainty, is the kid Jewish or not, that's only when the egg dona donation and the gestation are split. When the egg donor is the one that carries the baby, there is no halachic shayla. And when you have split donation, uh, you're, you know, you're back to square one. If they're both non-Jewish, the kid is non-Jewish. If they're both Jewish, the kid's Jewish. If one is Jewish and one is not Jewish, you're back to the same set of shilas, whether egg donation, uh, whether uh, maternity is based on genetic contribution or on gestation. 
Okay, so you should be able to look at all four of those scenarios and understand what the halachic problem is. Yeah. Yeah. That that's correct. That, that that is correct because uh, if you have an agreement to deliver the born child to Gentile parents, you might be giving up a Jew to be raised by non-Jews. In fact, it's even a problem if you're if you happen to be religious, and even if you're giving it to a Jewish couple and they're going to not keep Shabbos and the like, even that may be a problem. What gives you the right? to give up you know, a Jewish child to a non-religious uh, couple. Even that is an issue, you see? Okay, now let me just mention one fascinating proof to this. So, you know, so we have different proofs one way or the other. Halakhic scholars debate this, there are Talmudic proofs. But let me give you a fascinating proof from a Midrash. Now, I have to say at the outset that Halakha recognizes that Midrashim are not always valid halachic proofs. Rashim are the more legendary or homiletical or true. I mean, God forbid, uh, they're also true, but they're not making halachic points, and therefore sometimes they're understood symbolically, metaphorically, allegorically, and therefore they're not necessarily taken as concrete proofs in halacha. But this is a metric that has a direct bearing on the halacha, and that is the following uh, medrash. Uh, there is a medrash that says that when uh, Leah was pregnant, after she had six, right, she had six boys, and the maidservants had two and two, so there were ten shvatim that were born, Leah got pregnant for the seventh time. And there's actually a medrash that says Leah was pregnant with a boy that boy would have become Yosef. But Leah prayed, because Leah was afraid. She knew there would be 12 tribes, and if she had the 11th tribe, that is Yosef, that would only leave her sister Rachel with one tribe, Binyamin, and that would have made her inferior to even the maidservants. So Leah prayed, this is what Rashi brings, and I'm sure you learned this, Leah prayed that the male that she was carrying should be turned into a female, and that became Dina. That's why it mentions she gave birth to Dina. It does not say she conceived Dina. She conceived a boy. It turned into, in fact, uh, Chazal even say, that's why Dina was so... Um, walking around all these different places because she had kind of the male characteristic of not being reticent and she walked into Shechem, dangerous cities, etc., etc. Now, according to the way Rashi brings the Midrash, this was simply a case of a girl, I'm sorry, of a boy turning into a girl. It was a miracle. But Targum Yonasan ben Uziel has a different version of the Midrash. This was not a male 
turning into a female. This was a switched embryo, meaning here's the concept. Both Rachel and Leah were pregnant at the same time. Leah was carrying a boy. Rachel was carrying a girl. When Leah prayed that Rachel should have the boy, it's not that the girl turned into a boy, the boy turned into a girl, but rather HaKadosh Baruch took the embryo. This is not the way Rashi brings it. This is not the same way Rashi understands the story. But according to Targum Yonasan, Hashem took the embryo that was a boy from Leah's womb and implanted it in Rachel's womb. And that became Yosef. And Hashem took the embryo that was in Rachel's womb, a girl, and transplanted it to Leah, and that became Dean. In other words, this is not the way Rashi gives the story. Rashi gives the story that simply, there was no embryo switch, simply the fetuses changed gender. Targum Yonason says they were switched. Now, if you accept Targum Yonason's version, it turns out that Dina was genetically the child of Rachel. It was her egg. Dina's DNA is Rachel's DNA. And Yosef's DNA is Leah's DNA. In other words, it literally is an egg donation scenario, like Targum Yonason. Now, since throughout the Torah, Yosef is always described as the child of Rachel. And Dina is always described as the daughter of Leah. What does that prove, according to Targum Yonasan? That maternity is defined by gestation and birth rather than egg donation. And therefore, that would indicate, in the case of a donated egg and the Jewish wife carries the baby, the child would be Jewish by birth. And in the case of gestational surrogacy, if it's a non-Jew, the child would be non-Jewish. So this is a fascinating medrash, but you understand it is only a proof according to the Targum Yonasan version of the story. It is not a proof according to Rashi's version of the story. Does everyone understand the difference between Rashi's version of the story and Targum Yonasan? According to Rashi's version of the story, there was no embryo switching it was simply converting what was already in the womb into a different gender. And Chazal points out that that's a miracle. Normally, you cannot pray once a child is, once the child is more than forty days old in the womb, you cannot pray for a gender switch, whatever it is. Uh, that's considered to be uh, praying for a supernatural miracle. But Rachel and Leah was considered to be a supernatural miracle in that way. But according to Targum Yonason, it literally was surgery. It was like an embryonic surgery. And that's mamash relevant to the egg donation. Fascinating, fascinating point. But as they say, halakhically, uh, we don't really bring proofs from the Drashim, but it's a fascinating precedent to this particular issue. By the way, a little aside, a little bibliographical information, just because maybe you're not familiar with the names here. Uh, uh, Targum Yonasan ben Uziel. Let me just mention a little bit about him. Uh, if you open up a Chumash with commentaries, you will see the Targum. Targum means the Aramaic, the translation of the Torah into Aramaic, which was the spoken language in Babylonia and even in Eretz Israel during the Second Temple. Uh, 
Uh, Yashka probably spoke Aramaic rather than Hebrew. Uh, that was the common language. In fact, in uh, Mel Gibson's uh, movie, uh, I believe the soundtrack is actually in Aramaic with English. So where do you get actors who speak Aramaic? I don't know, but, uh, but apparently they wanted to be authentic in that, in that way. Now, Targum Unculus. Unculus was the nephew of the Roman emperor who converted to Judaism at great risk to his life, and he translated the Torah into Aramaic, and that's a very, very authentic translation. But Unculus is very, very literal. We have, however, another translation of the Torah into Aramaic, which has many midrashim and it's m much embellished. And the author of this Targum is said to be Yonasan ben Uziel. Now, who is Yonasan ben Uziel? He was the greatest of the Talmudim of Hillel, the famous Hillel. His greatest Talmud was Yonasan ben Uziel. He was so holy, he was so great, that when he would learn Torah, all the birds would come to listen to him. But because there were also fiery angels, any bird that flew over his head was burnt to a crisp. Uh, people like to say that a difference in a chassid and a misnage is how they understand the significance of the story. A chassid would be so moved by the greatness of a human being connecting to Hashem that even the angels are jealous of our connection to HaKadosh Baruch A misnage would be focused on the monetary questions. Who has to pay for the bird? I mean, let's say the bird is somebody's pet. Uh, am I liable for supernatural damage that angels do because of my learning, right? Who, who has the chiyuv, right? That's what a Gemara cup, a Gemara head would want to analyze. Who pays for the bird? We've we got to be very, very specific there. So Yonason ben Uziel was the greatest of Hillel's Talmidim. Now you may know, maybe if the name sounds vaguely familiar, I don't know if you've been up to Amuka, uh, up or down to Amuka, uh, near Tzfat, up north, there's a, Amuka is a very deep, deep, deep valley, and Yonasan ben Uziel is buried there, and that is said to be a great, great place to be mispalel, to pray for a shidduch. People go to Amuka to pray for shidduchim, and what often happens is uh, either boys or girls, men or women, accidentally leave their sitter there, they just forgot their sitter, with their name, address, uh, phone number, and email, and uh, some uh, boy or girl wants to fulfill the mitzvah of returning lost articles, so they will call up uh, or email that particular address to return the sitter, of course, that's the only intention, and you know, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, uh, have been made in that way uh, as well. I don't know if you've been to Amuka. Have you ever been to Amuka? Okay, so uh, now I think Amuka is, is not as, I think now there are lights there, but I remember uh, going to Amuka. There was literally, it was total darkness. Total. Is it still, still that way now? It's amazing. But, but the amazing thing is, you now, you now understand, you know, what does it mean that the Jews are like the stars of the heaven? You know, it's always been a problem. You learn the Chumash, Hashem tells Abraham, your children will be like the stars of the heaven. So I look up at the heaven, I see like three stars. What do I see? I, 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 don't, I, don't, see, I, don't, I don't see anything up there uh, because of light pollution or whatever it is. In Amuka, totally dark and you're deep. You mamish see like millions and millions of stars. There, there's a lot, a lot of stars up there. 
you understand what it means, kikochvei, kikochvei hashemayim. Okay, alrighty. Now, let me mention one other, so, so one issue with surrogacy, egg donation, all of this is uh, Jew versus Goy, that's very important. But we have to understand that is not the only question. Even if everybody's Jewish, everybody's Jewish, egg donor, surrogate, everybody's Jewish, so the kid is Jewish, no problem. But there are going to be a lot of other issues, and this is the issue you brought up, particularly among intra-family issues. For example, often a sister wants to be a surrogate for her sister. Let's say, for example, that a sister, uh, a, a wife is unable to carry a baby. So her single sister, or her married sister for that matter, either one, says, I'll carry it and Baruch Hashem will be so happy to give you the child. You have to understand that is an extremely serious halachic problem. And this is a halachic problem if the sister is single or if the sister is married. It's the same problem. Because the problem basically is, if the husband's sperm is going to impregnate an embryo that's, or impregnate an egg that's going to be carried by his wife's sister. That may be halachically incestuous. Let me explain why. One of the forbidden arayos in the Torah is cohabiting with your wife's sister. Your wife's sister. In fact, how did Yaakov do that? That's a whole question. But, but the simple meaning is before the Torah was given, this wasn't prohibited. But Yaakov marrying two sisters would have been a prohibited act after the Torah was given. So as a result, uh, whether the sister is married or single, if she is carrying a child from her, from his, I'm sorry, from her sister's husband, that child is potentially a mamzer. It's a mamzer, possibly, because uh, if a husband lives with his wife's sister, it's a mamzer. Now, it is also a problem whenever the Jewish surrogate is married, because it might be treated as generating a mamzer. So, as a result, if you're going to use a surrogate, the ideal surrogate is a Jewish single woman who is not related to husband or wife. Because if there's a relationship, there's a potential of incest and mamzer. Okay, so the ideal surrogate is single Jewish woman. The next best is single non-Jewish woman, but then you get into a conversion question, which you know you could you could do by doing a conversion. Okay? Married surrogates are extremely prob problematical and related surrogates, like sisters, are extremely problematical. So the most common surrogate that you'd want to use is actually like a sister or even a mother. Sometimes mothers, mothers are surrogates for daughters. Because the mother might be more fertile than than, than the daughter for for whatever reason. Uh, you, cannot, you cannot do it. Yeah? Um, if the child is converted, is the father then not supposed to touch his daughter? Well, let's take... Okay, let me give you a parallel case. Let, let's imagine um, a Jewish man 
has a child from a non-Jewish woman, and the girl is a non-Jew, and the girl converts. Is there a prohibition when the child is of age for the father to hug, kiss, or be alone? So it's a good question. It is a good question, and there may be a reason that it would be forbidden, but we, we, we rule that it's permitted because we basically say that as long as physically this child came from him, there is no sexual desire, and therefore the prohibitions would not so kick not in. Okay, so under Torah, under Torah law, it is permitted. The rabbis prohibited it because it looks bad. It looks like incest. But under Torah law, uh, under, under Torah law, and this is quite amazing, I'll tell you something worse. Under Torah law, a mother, can mar- a mother and son who convert can marry. A father and daughter who convert can marry. A brother and sister who convert can marry. This is under Torah law. But uh, in all of these cases, the Chachamim prohibited it because it resembles incest. But it is not halachic incest. Because once you convert, you have severed the relationship. But the only thing is, with respect to hugging, kissing, and the like, uh, we look at the biological reality as allowing that. Yeah. Okay. So, let's say it is. This comes from a show that I watched at one time. Okay. But maybe it is. Is it considered incest if the husband has, like, the man and woman's egg are in a surrogate? Is it Incest if the man has like an affair with the surrogate? Well, because his child is in there, but like I, I don't know, is that like something? Well, 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 it's not incest. It's not incest. Well, I mean, I mean, well, well, well. I mean, let me ask you this guy. I, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but let me ask you this: If a man has relations with his pregnant wife, is he having intercourse with his child? No, 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 this, this question is actually raised. In other words, the question becomes, how can a person have relations with, a preg- with his pregnant wife? Uh, he's having relations with his child. No, no, but we, don't, but, 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 but we rule it's not. We rule that uh, the fetus is a separate thing and uh, he's not having relations with that. So, so relations with a surrogate is not any worse than relations with your wife. Yes, that, that, may, that may be incest. Because his sperm is uh, impregnating the egg. Well, it may be the egg of his wife, but it's being carried by his sister. So in other words, his wife's sister, or his own sister, or her sister, whatever it is, is carrying the child of a man with whom this would be an incestuous relationship. So that is a problem. So again, so be, be very, very aware that when sisters or mothers or even married women generally are volunteering to be surrogates, there are some very, very serious halachic incest questions. Yeah. Wait, sorry, you might have just said this and I missed it. If, yeah. let's say the, okay, let's say husband and wife marry, divorce, he marries her sister, that's incest? Yes, it is. Hmm. Not his sister or her sister, and they have no kids? Yes, yes, uh, I understand this, is, this may be a less, less familiar Prohibition to you? No, 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 no. Yibam is the other way around. Yibam is when the uh, the brother marries the widow of his brother. Yeah, Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah. This is where you're marrying the. uh, In other words, a man divorces his wife, and a man wants to marry the sister. Now, the halacha is like this. An interesting halacha. If his wife dies, if his wife dies, 
then he can marry her sister. But if, he, if, but if, his, uh, if he divorces his wife, he is not allowed to marry her sister. He's not allowed to marry her, but it's considered incest also? It is a form of injury. The child would be a momser. It's a prohibited union. It is a prohibited union. This is called achos isha. You cannot marry, a man cannot marry the sister of his wife unless his wife has died. Yeah. Um, how is it not Good, good question, good question. Uh, the answer is, you see from here a very important rule, and the rule is that uh, marital relations between husband and wife are legitimate and proper even when a pregnancy cannot occur. Uh, an example would be, why is it not spilling of seed to have relations post-menopause? The answer is because procreation is not the only legitimate reason for relations. There is the bond between husband and wife. I mean, that, that's, uh, this is uh, another example of, of, of that. So uh, intercourse during pregnancy is absolutely permitted. Uh, but the question you raised, why isn't that called incest uh, for the unborn child? You know, that's discussed, but, but as a practical matter, uh, uh, we're not concerned for it. Yeah. Um, if a man Uh, that, that, that's an excellent, that is an excellent question because normally, normally wearing a condom is, is considered to be uh, masturbation, spilling of seed because the seed is not entering uh, the woman's body, uh, but it could very well be, it, it, again, again, there are many people who are absolutely strict and do not allow it no matter what and if that means they can't have relations then they don't and they get divorced, but others say if this is the only way they could have relations without passing on the disease, uh, they would be permitted to have even a condom. But that's a very controversial I issue. Uh, as, as you know, when it comes to contraception, condom is almost the last thing. It's the next to the last thing. I mean, uh, tubal ligation is, and vasectomies are worse, and condom is uh, the next one that's no good. So we would not allow a condom as a contraceptive device, but, uh, but that's because you have other alternatives like birth control pill or whatever. But in the case of an STD, where a condom might literally be the only way relations might be possible, halacha might be a little more lenient uh, for that. Yeah. If a sister, um, well, if a husband and wife have the issue that she cannot, she's not fertile, so she can't produce her own eggs, yeah. but she can carry an embryo, and her sister donates an egg, Yes, and the reason it's an issue is because this is the same problem of who's the mother. See, in other words, it's analytically the same problem because if you define the mother as the egg donor, mm -hmm. then the husband's sperm is generating a child that is halakhically the child of his wife's sister. In, in other words, mm -hmm. it depends on this question, meaning if you assigned maternity to the birth mother, then theoretically a sister could be the egg donor. But if you assign maternity to the egg donor, she couldn't. Did, did everyone understand? In other words, it's the same problem of who is the mother that will determine the incest and mom's your problem. Yeah. So if um, I'm a woman and I'm pregnant, 
on a practical level, if a couple was in this situation and they went to their rub and asked for a stock, and their rub said like that his stock would be that the maternity is from um, yeah. from the gestational from yeah. whoever yeah. carried the child. So let's say they have this child. The egg is from you know the aunt. Yeah, the aunt or the sister. Yeah. But she, but the child was born from the husband and wife. Yep. And according to their family yep. rub, yep. this child is halakhically mom and dad. That's correct. Does she, would she ever have to reveal that kind of thing? Like, <laughs> in Shadu or would that, I mean, I'm saying, like, if she... You know, that's a very, very excellent, good, good question. And all I can tell you is that, um, you know, it depends. Halakhic consensus changes with time. But at the present time, this is such a disputed question. And some will say that the child is a mamzer that there would be an obligation to reveal it so that the other side could ask for their own halakhic shayla. Now it may very well be if we reach a point in the poskin that everybody comes uh, to one side, then you don't have to resuscitate old shitos that are no longer followed. But I think today uh, it would have to be disclosed because precisely because of this uncertainty. Yeah? Uh, in a similar situation, if a couple Um, and the sister didn't convert, you mean? The sister didn't convert. And then they could just, like, convert. Wow, that's a very interesting case. Now, of course, the child would need a conversion because of the non-Jewish origin. But even if she did, Yeah, it would be the same thing. You're correct. Uh, I think you got, I think you got, a, you got a point there. I, I, think, I, I think that there would be a, a basis to permit them. That's a, that's a very good point. Yeah. So... My brother's a donor, and he's just been convert. Yeah. Do you, so, how long have you been deciding to marry my brother? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to, making that very, very clear. <laughs> <laughs> but, he's you're the same dad with me. Right. You were born, you were born, you were born from the same mother, right? You were born from, the, from same the same mother? mother. Yeah. So, so, so at a, min, at a minimum, since some opinions do say you are siblings, because of a birth, so because of the doubt, yes, because of the doubt, you would not be allowed to marry. Meaning, if you followed the view that your brother is a non-Jew, and uh, so so when he converts, then uh, well, rabbinically you couldn't do it anyway, but but uh, under Torah law you could. But because of this doubt, you would not be allowed to. So there's no question that you're you're not allowed to. Okay, very interesting. Thank you so much. You added a lot of uh, interesting interesting questions. Uh, and again, uh, we'll continue with more to talk about with this topic. We'll continue uh, next week. Take care. Have a good week.